Hi, it's the 13th of April, 2018. This is the Room Now Weekend Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we have a lot of questions, a lot of talk about Shingrix, and the question is, do you dig Shingrix? What in the world is Shingrix? What about maybe the most important study done in lupus this year, the Symbio study? And then why is rheumatology gonna get a lot harder by 2030? All this and more. At the top, we have an interesting study about PPIs and rheumatoid arthritis. We did a review about PPIs because there's a lot of negative reports about the safety of the of, of proton pump inhibitors uh, in general, but obviously we use a lot of them in our arthritis patients. Uh, and there's a lot about osteoporosis and, and the risk of kidney disease and a number of different things. It turns out many of the, the warnings around PPIs are really rare, rare events. Uh, and, and hence really shouldn't call into question their safety unless the drug really isn't needed. Well, this is an interesting study because it looks at a very large cohort of RA patients, patients and matches them four to one, one RA to four controls not on PPIs and looks at the risk of developing acute kidney injury. And again, this is sort of an outcome study, not a lot in between, but nonetheless, it is shown that if you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're on PPI chronically, that you have a doubling of your risk of AKI, acute kidney injury. And the, the thing though is that it's a rare event, meaning that if you were on a PPI and had rheumatoid arthritis, the risk is 2.2 events per 1,000 patient years, 2.2 per 1,000 people. If you weren't on a PPI, your risk was 0.9. So there's a doubling of the risk and that seems significant, but the risk is really low. The bottom line is if you need the PPI, you should probably be on it. If you don't, this is a good reason maybe not to take it. Interesting data comes about, uh, about earlier arthritis coming from the UK. Two cohorts over there, over there, one in the Leeds Early Arthritis Clinic, the other one's called the ERAS study. And these are very large cohorts. One has 454 patients, the other one has 895, over 1,300 patients. And they looked at the outcomes of these people over time, specifically looking at how many achieved DMARD-free, drug-free remission. Turns out it wasn't nearly as great as you think it might be, given that they're early RA, they may have undifferentiated disease. Still, in these two cohorts, followed longitudinally, the risk of having DMARD-free remission was 15% in the lead study and only 9.4% in the ERAS study, suggesting 10 to 15% will go into remission. That's kind of the number you should be quoting uh, in an early arthritis patient anyway. The risk of actually developing remission was seen most in those who had an acute onset, a short symptom duration, non-smokers, and those that didn't have extensive x-ray damage, presumably erosions at the outset, and lastly, of course, seronegativity. They also looked at shared epitope, and those who did not have the shared epitope alleles that we see, you know, HLA, DR, beta 1, 101, you know, the old DR4 alleles, um, those also probably had a lower risk of developing, um, uh, of, of, if you did not have those, you had a better chance of going into drug-free remission. Shingrix, it is the new uh, approved, FDA-approved vaccine for shingles. What is different from the old vaccine, Zostavax, that was a live virus vaccine. This is an inactive vaccine. It was approved this year, it was endorsed by the FDA, a marginal endorsement by the ACI, ACIP of, you know, like seven to five votes or something like that. 
But nonetheless, the interesting data is that it has captured 90% of the shingles vaccine market, meaning that, that Zostavax really has taken a, a hit with the introduction of this new drug. Now, it, it is about this, uh, the same cost. It is, they're both available. One is a live virus, one is not. That's the Shingrix is not. Um, and it is indicated for those over the age of 50, it has to be given as two injections. The first one, the second one has to be either uh, after two, but less than six months after the first. Uh, and again, it is more effective than Zostavax, the live virus, uh, a lot more effective, especially in the elderly, and, ha and it, not only as far as protection, but also in the prevention of post-herpetic neuralgia. But it does have more nuisance side effects, more you know, aches and pains and fevers and flu-like stuff. Um, it does have the advantage of being uh, able to use it in patients on biologics, which you can't do with Zostavax, but you could do with Shingrix. Problem is it hasn't been studied and the company doesn't have any intentions of studying it. And although there are many of us um, like Len Calabrese, myself, you know, uh, Bing Bingham and, and Jeff Curtis, all the, 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 shing the uh, vaccination guys who know a lot about the shingles data have all made pitches for this drug to be studied in our patients to learn more about it. Again, I would probably use it in someone on a biologic if I needed to, but again, the, the, the question is, it's two shots versus one. It's about the same money, maybe a little bit more, but really about the same cost. The coverage is about the same. You could use it in more people, but it's got more side effects. So the question is, do you date Shingrix? It, at least as far as sales, it's dominating the market. We don't know what it's doing in rheumatoid arthritis in the rheumatology space. Interesting data comes from Ireland where there's actually new laws about, uh, about uh, developing new care centers and, and streamlined care for pediatric rheumatology patients. Unfortunately, this hasn't yet taken place and they've seen a significant delay in uh, pediatric uh, patients getting in to see pediatric rheumatologists. There's right now 902 patients waiting for an appointment with a, with a rheumatologist, a pediatric rheumatologist, whereas it was um, um, only 302 in 2017, a year ago. So there's a delay in this, and the, the bottom line is that they're having a problem there in getting their pediatric rheumatology patients seen by the pediatric rheumatology specialist. Guess what? The same thing is, I think, going on here in the United States. If you review the data about the availability of pediatric rheumatologists in the United States, it's abysmal. I mean, it's a geographic maldistribution. There is, um, you know, eight states with one, I think it's five states with one pediatric rheumatologist and eight states with none at all. Um, there's a lot in Southern California and New York, but everywhere in between, it's really, really suffering. So we need more pediatric rheumatologists. We need more adults to take on the responsibility of caring for these kids, because there's a lot of kids we do need care here in the United States and also in Ireland. Interesting data comes from one of these uh, uh, advocacy groups that looks at pharma, spend pharma spending, and they just released data about the, the pharma spending habits when it comes to patient advocacy groups. In 2015, pharma gave $116 million to um, groups like the Arthritis Foundation, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundations, etc. Um, and some wonder whether or not that's a conflict of interest. Interestingly, there's one group that's called Patients for Biologic Safety and Access, and not surprisingly, they, they oppose the introduction or the forced use of biosimilars, um, and they've received $9.1 million from drug companies who stand to gain from such a stance. 
Um, there's a lot of money being thrown thrown around here, and, and we like to think the nonprofits are behaving uh, in a responsible manner, but that's sort of what those reports about. And if you want to read more about it, there's links, and you can follow the numbers and build your own conspiracy. What about lupus and the risk to lupus patients? Well, an interesting study looks at the comorbidity burden. This actually comes from Leslie Crawford's group at Vanderbilt University, where they have a novel way of looking at the phenome, meaning the way the disease is expressed, um, in a large number of individuals that they've tracked using electronic health records. Like almost two million people and whatnot, and they've narrowed it down to a few hundred patients with lupus and specifically looked at um, lupus patients who are African-American, those who are Caucasian, and, um, and, and then African-Americans who didn't have lupus. And what they found was that African-Americans have a significantly higher burden of comorbidities compared to the comparator groups. In fact, there's like somewhere between a four and tenfold increased odds of having um, both cardiovascular disease, renal disease, uh, and infections, suggesting that this is a population, we know this population has more, more aggressive disease than does Caucasian disease, but again, it's the comorbidities that may kill them as much as lupus may kill them. I always like to say that if a lupus patient gets admitted to the hospital, it's more likely they're there for a medical reason than for lupus, unless it's a CNS presentation. That mean, just means really that there's a lot of comorbidity that happens in lupus that we need to be aware of and we need to develop preventative strategies towards. Well, the SymBio study, I teased about this at the outset. This was probably the most important and impactful paper that was presented at ULAR in 2017. This is a, a group from um, Leiden in, in University in the Netherlands. And what they did was they took an interest in trying to figure out why lupus patients um, uh, get the, the manifestations that they do. That they, they do know from studies that immune complexes drive a lot of, of, of autoreactive uh, B cells and that there's a lot of netosis going on and nets lead rise, give rise to autoantibodies, including ANAs and whatnot. And they think that this could be tied in with the pathogenesis of the disorder. So they set out to affect the outcomes by trying to target these autoreactive plasma cells um, by giving patients who have very severe refractory lupus uh, rituximab at the outset, two infusions, 1,000 milligrams, two weeks apart, followed by regular infusions of belimumab given over a six-month period. So they put this to the test. They were looking at clinical outcomes, safety outcomes, and immunologic outcomes, and the, the results were astounding. These people had really severe disease. I mean, gigantically severe disease. They had a, an average sleet eye score of 18. Put that in perspective, to get into a, a, a lupus trial, you have to have a sleet eye score usually of more than four or more than eight. They had an average of 18. They were all on mycophenolate, had failed other therapies, and they go on the study on mycophenolate and 60 milligrams of prednisone, and then the rituxan followed by the belimumab. So in the end, at the end of 24 weeks, there were significant reductions in autoantibodies, significant reductions in in vitro netosis activity, as again, measured in vitro. And then they also had you know, no new safety signals, but the numbers that they saw were astounding. Sleet eye went down from an average of 18 to two. 80% of people were able to achieve a low disease activity state in lupus. Um, you know, more than half these patients had nephritis and proteinuria dropped dramatically. Almost everybody was able to drop their corticosteroid dose significantly. Almost everybody was able to go off of 
mycophenolate. Again, the results were astounding. There were some mild infections. There were three cases of hypogammaglobulinemia. This is dramatic. Of course, it's also uncontrolled. These were really severe people using two drugs that I must say I'm not a big fan of because, you know, the rituximab trials failed in spite of you all thinking that rituximab is a miracle drug in lupus. There's no data to support that really other than this data I'm showing you here. It's a lot of collective open label experience with a, a reporting bias. And this too could be a reporting bias. Also, belimumab. The margin of benefit in belimumab is small and compared to those on placebo. And, and then who do you give belimumab to when you don't know what else to do? I don't like these. Anyway, these investigators found what seems to be a really smart use of the drug. Turns out when you give rituximab, there's a gigantic rise in circulating bliss. It turns out then if you inhibit that with belimumab, that goes way down, patients get better. We need to see more studies like this. This is, a, I think, a very important trial. Also important is the finally published ACR Manpower Report that's published in this month's uh, Arthritis Care and Research. Um, and it's a very important study. It tells us that right now, as of 2015, we are operating in a deficit. When you look at the current supply and demand, looking at full-time employees, FTEs that are capable of taking care of patients, that includes rheumatologists, but also uh, advanced practice providers like physician assistants and nurse practitioners, that we are down 700 right now. And then with an aging population, uh, with the, um, a, great, a growing number of people with arthritis and the retirement of many white 60-year-old rheumatologists, hey, that's me. No, I'm not retiring. Um, a tsunami of older white rheumatologists retiring. Um, and then along with a shift, more women going into the marketplace, and they, but they may not work a full year. What if they have a child and took time off for their families? Less men, more foreign graduates. Um, there are geographic distribution problems here. Um, we're gonna be down in 2030 by over 4,000 rheumatologists to provide the current care that we're supposed to be providing. So this is a big issue and one that the college is going to have to tackle and you as an individual need to think about and talk to your leaders, talk to your friends. We need to solve this because, you know, I want rheumatology to continue to be an incredibly attractive discipline to go into. Uh, and, and we need to make it attractive. We need to make it as, as interesting and scientific and as touchy-feely as it is and why we all love it. Lastly, a report from Megan Klaus and a number of investigators, which if you read all of them in the middle is some guy named Kush, that talks about the collective experience with sertolizumab in women exposed to sertolizumab during pregnancy. As you know, there was a preliminary report that came out with a few hundred cases uh, already in publication. This is a follow-up report um, that looks at over 1,100 sertolizumab-exposed pregnancies for which they have great data on 538 known outcomes. 85% um, live births, 8% uh, miscarriages, elective abortions in 5%, 0.9% or only five stillbirths. Uh, all in all, there were eight congenital malformations for a rate of 1.7%. You know, in a general population, that number is hard to come by, but it's about three to 6% of normal people having supposedly normal children. Again, three to 6% congenital malformations are seen. So this is below even that seen in the normals. And they did compare these results to normals. There are no other controls to look at. Of these patients that were exposed, the vast majority were for Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis, a few hundred each. Um, the vast majority, 81% had first trimester exposures, but 
um, nearly half, 44% or so, had exposure to sertilizumab throughout the pregnancy. That tends to happen more in Crohn's disease than it does happen in RA. But this is very encouraging data um, that's come out about sertilizumab. And again, it's use in women who wish to become pregnant uh, and its safety. I guess that means we have to sign off. See you next week at Room Now.